Romans 7, that uh, we'll be continuing on from Romans 7 into Romans chapter 8 this morning. But Romans chapter 7 raises the biggest dilemma that Christians have. If it's not one of the most significant questions that we have as Christians, it, it should be. Just let me read some of chapter 7. I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in the flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in, within me. That's just a, a snapshot of uh, Paul describing uh, this in, internal struggle that he has. This dilemma. And the dilemma is if, as we've been hearing in the first six chapters of Romans, if I have been saved by Jesus from my sin, if I am justified by grace through faith alone, if I'm free from the power of sin and death, then why do I still struggle with sin? Some uh, pastors and Bible scholars suggest that Romans 7 is, uh, is only speaking of a person who doesn't know Christ, uh, that it's, uh, Paul is talking about his experience before he became a believer, someone who is still captive to sin and could do nothing but sin. They say that Paul's use of the first person in that chapter, he normally speaks in the second or third person, but he reverts to the first person as if he's speaking of himself. He's either describing himself before he was saved, which I don't think works because he's speaking in the present tense, or that he's, he's just using the I in a figurative sense, putting himself, so to speak, in the shoes of anyone who's not yet uh, come to know that justification that comes through Jesus. They point to verses like verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Or verse 23. I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. They say, well, this is something you can't say of a true believer, of a born-again, regenerate believer. You can't use words like captive to the law of sin or a sold under sin of a believer. I don't agree with them and I don't agree for two reasons. Firstly, some of the other verses in chapter 7 such as 18 and 19. I have the desire to do what is right but not the ability to carry it out for I do not do the good I want but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Or verses 21 to 22. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Notice what Paul is saying here about what's going on in his heart before we even look at his actions. He says, 
I have the desire to do what is right. He says, the good that I want and the evil that I do not want. He even says, I delight in the law of God. See, the dilemma here is not that he wants to sin or that he doesn't want to do what's right, he doesn't want to obey God, but that he struggles to find the ability to stop sinning or to do the right. See, his heart is right. He has a renewed heart, a heart that's been turned back towards God and has set its affections on Christ. It has the desire to turn from sin. It has the desire to obey. It's just that he finds that when he examines himself, he finds an incongruity between what his head and his heart wants and what he finds his hands actually doing. The second reason I believe this is a Christian that he is describing here is because of the reality of human experience. Now, experience is not our final authority, but we should expect that the testimony of the Scriptures matches with the experience of a person who believes the Scriptures and seeks to apply it to their lives. So if Romans 7 is implying that when a person becomes a Christian they no longer struggle with sin, we need to ask the question, well, if that's the case, then why has that never been the experience of any Christian ever to stop struggling with sin? If one day you wake up and sin is no longer a battle for you, then one of two things has happened. Either you've died or you haven't woken up at all and it's just a dream. In this life, sin will always be present. One of Martin Luther's famous phrases, I'm not going to attempt to pronounce the Latin, but in the English it is simultaneously righteous and sinful. Uh, Or as some of us may know it in the words of Martin Bleeby's hymn, nothing more than a sinner nothing less than justified. See, the Father's design, his plan is that after saving us, he begins the work of conforming us to the image of his Son, Jesus. This work of saving is called justification and the work of transforming us is called sanctification. And while the the work of justification is instantaneous and complete, the moment we put our faith in Jesus, the work of sanctification, while it is guaranteed, takes place over the course of our entire Christian life until the point where we come face to face with Jesus and we are changed in the twinkling of an eye. This means that our sin will only be gone from our lives when we stand in glory with him. But it also means that our ongoing battle with sin and the suffering that comes from that is one of the things that the Father uses to bring us closer to himself and to transform us to be more like Jesus. Just read the book of Hebrews and you you see Jesus there, uh, even though he is without sin, he is tempted 
and he suffers when he is tempted and by suffering in temptation he is able to be our great high priest to identify with us. It's only through that suffering of temptation that Jesus is even qualified to be our saviour. So if we are going to be like Jesus we also need to know the suffering that comes when we face temptation. There are two ways that we might wrongly respond to this ongoing struggle with sin. The first is legalism, a concept that we know all too well. Legalism doesn't just mean we think we are saved by the works of the law. It also means that we think we stay saved by the works of the law. Legalism looks at sin and says the solution to sin is to try harder to obey the law. We can have a kind of a grace legalism where we say, yes, I know I'm saved by grace but it's up to me to keep that salvation by working hard to obey the law. So legalism mistakenly thinks that we can somehow become sinless in this life. There will only ever be two outcomes of legalism. One is pride because we'll get to a point where we think that we've got it sorted and we fool ourselves and we think I'm doing a good job at beating this sin thing and we become prideful and confident in ourselves. Or despondency where we continually fail, continually fall and we we go into a spiritual depression in which we're never quite sure of God's love and acceptance of us because we have this standard that we know we'll never reach. Very often the pride of legalism will turn into the despondency of legalism. Pride comes before a fall, we know. Legalism is a dreadful burden, not only when we use it to control and condemn others, but when we place the weight upon our own shoulders. This was Jesus' criticism of the Pharisees. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. We can do that to others, we can be the Pharisee but we can also be the Pharisee to ourselves. We place those burdens on our own shoulders and have these great expectations. But this weight of legalism is what Jesus came to set us free from. Come to me all who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You can follow the way, take on the yoke of the Pharisees, but it will be a heavy weight of legalism. Come to Jesus and take on his yoke, and that weight of legalism will be lifted from you. The other way we might wrongly respond to our struggle with sin is through what theologians call antinomianism. Now, nomos is the Greek word for law. So to be antinomian means you are anti-law. It goes to the other extreme of legalism and thinks that the only way to deal with the condemnation of the law is just get rid of the law and then we're okay. 
This is what Paul's critics had been accusing him of and he deals with this issue in the book of Romans. Now we can be antinomian in a a very spiritual sounding way by saying Jesus fulfilled the law on my behalf so now I don't need to know what the law says. I don't need to worry about obedience. Or we can be antinomian by just simply saying my sin is not actually that bad. The law was way too harsh in condemning me for things that are simply just who I am and what I am. Now Jesus tells me I'm okay just the way I am. Both of these approaches, these antinomian approaches, downplay the seriousness of sin but also the importance of obedience in God's eyes. Does God want his children to obey? He does. How can we obey unless we hear his commands? Now in our passage in Romans 8, Paul isn't presenting legalism, he's not presenting antinomianism, he's not even presenting a balance between the two. He's presenting something completely different, completely new. Uh, we could call it gracism, not racism, gracism. And it's not a balance between no law and too much law, it's, it's a completely different way. See, chapter 8 is the answer to the dilemma of chapter 7. And as we go through this chapter in the next four weeks, we'll be seeing a number of things that we need to be saying to ourselves and to one another whenever we face this struggle with sin. The first thing we must say is, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Said in the, the weekly email, this is the most glorious verse in the most liberating chapter in all of the scriptures. No condemnation. This is the truth that comes to us when we're wallowing in the wretchedness of our sin, when we feel captive to the body of death that Paul describes in 7 verse 24. That this truth comes and picks us up and stands us back on our feet. No matter how deep our fall, no matter how bad our sin, no matter how long we took taking pleasure in that sin, no matter how much damage it may have caused to us or even to others, the starting point for any restoration and repentance must be this liberating truth. No condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. This is the heart of the Gospel. The risen Jesus died to pay for your sin. No condemnation. We see this beautifully illustrated in Jesus' interaction with the woman who was caught in adultery. John chapter 8. After getting rid of the men who were standing there ready to stone her, he stood before her and he was the only one qualified to throw the first stone because he was the only one without sin. But what did he say? Woman, where are they? 
Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Grace doesn't pretend that there's no sin, or that sin isn't serious, but rather it says that there is another way for sin to be dealt with, apart from the law. See, when Jesus says that to this woman, he's looking forward to the event of his cross because at that cross he will bear this woman's adultery and all of her sin in himself. He will take upon himself the condemnation that this woman deserves so he can say, I don't condemn you. But notice also that the grace of no condemnation also leads to the command from now on, sin no more. This isn't antinomianism. Jesus isn't overthrowing the law. He's not saying, oh, that law about adultery, we'll get rid of that. But what he's doing is he's giving her a new motivation to continue to obey the law. Her obedience is not in order to be accepted, but is a joyful response to her being accepted by grace. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Not because God has gotten rid of the law, but because of what he has done in Jesus Christ has brought us into a new relationship with the law. And this relationship is spelled out in verse 2, where he uses this word law in a slightly different sense. Here it means principle or dynamic or the outworking of the law of God in a person's life. Apart from Christ, the law produces only sin and death. But it exposes their sin and it condemns them to death. And in this case, the law sits over them as an oppressive master, as we saw a few weeks ago. However, in Christ, the law has been moved to the place of foundation upon which we stand, about the foundation from which we go about and now our new life of liberty in the Spirit. As the Spirit applies to us all that Christ has done in his atoning death and resurrection, and as he gives us birth into a living hope, we now find that God's commands produce life. Now, excuse the pun, but this is fleshed out further in verses 3 and 4. We could not be saved by the law. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Why? Why could we not be saved by the law? Not because the law is not good, not because it's not God's word and it's not true, but because our sinful flesh prevented us from obeying. But God has done what the law could not do by sending his son. Notice his careful uh, use of words here. He doesn't say Jesus came in the likeness of flesh as if he was not truly human. He just seemed to be human. No, he took on our true and our full humanity. 
But he also does not say he came in sinful flesh because he was without sin. He was the perfect spotless sacrifice. Rather, he says, he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Meaning he came truly as one of us, but in order that being without sin himself, he might take upon himself the sin of humanity. He came for sin, so that the condemnation we deserve fell on him. This is fundamentally why there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not because it's been downgraded somehow, but because the condemnation was transferred to him. And then we see the fruit of this transfer in verse 4. The same application that Jesus gave the woman caught in adultery. Our lives now look different. I think it's up there. Yep. We no longer walk according to the flesh, but we walk according to the spirit. Now this could initially sound like the legalism I was talking about earlier. That once we become a Christian, we suddenly start doing nothing but good and no longer struggle with sin. And that's the way some people have read this, especially when they hear the phrase, walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. But when Paul is talking here about flesh and spirit, uh, he's not talking about physical versus spiritual, or um, physical versus non-physical. There was a heresy around in the first century, and it's still with us today, that human beings are made up of two components that can exist separately from one another, uh, the flesh or the body and the spirit. In this thinking, the flesh is bad and the spirit is good. So our ultimate goal should be to finally be rid of the flesh, be rid of the body and only live in the spiritual dimension. Now that actually came not from the scriptures but from Greek philosophy and from pagan religion and was taken on board by some Christians. Paul isn't saying that here. He's not saying one day you're going to get rid of your, your bad, weak, dirty old body and you're just going to live in a spiritual dimension. He's not saying that flesh and spirit are two components of a human being. Uh, he's speaking of them and they're better understood or thought of as two forces that motivate and empower us. The flesh is ourselves, our own physical desires and passions. The spirit is the Holy Spirit himself who's sent to dwell in us by the Father and the Son. So to be in Christ Jesus means that the former motivating, empowering force of ourselves, of our own desires, has been replaced by the Spirit himself who has sanctified us, set us apart and he brings with himself all of the fullness of the Father and the Son 
what ultimately is the highest, greatest, most important requirement of the law. We're going to talk about fulfilling the law. What is it? What is the one, one command that stands over all the other commands? That if you fulfil this command, you'll end up fulfilling every other command. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. It's a relational thing, not a doing thing. It's a relational thing that flows into the doing. Before the things that we do, the fulfilment or goal of the law is to be in a right relationship with God where we love him and we know his love for us. That's why there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In Christ is a relational term. It's not a performance term. When a person becomes a Christian, the transformation is not that they go from doing bad things to doing good things, but that they go from relying on the things that they do to try and justify themselves. As Paul puts it in verse 5, no, it's not up there, in verse 5 he says, set their minds on the things of the flesh, is to look to myself and say, I can do it, I can justify myself by my works. It's to go from that to relying on the relationship that they have with the Father through the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. Or as Paul puts it, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. You know, a life lived under law and a life lived under grace can sometimes look very similar. At first glance, they might even be indistinguishable because both bring about obedience. The law does it with fear, do this or else. Grace brings about obedience and says, do this because you are a child of God. The fundamental difference is this difference in motivating and empowering. The first relies on the flesh and as Paul says uh, in I think verse 10 it's actually an expression of hostility towards God because it's basically saying God I don't need you to do this I can do it myself. But the second is an expression of the relationship we have with God by the Holy Spirit. The first, living by the flesh, is not sustainable, but the second, living by the Spirit, bears fruit that lasts into eternity. So, the second thing that we must say to ourselves when we struggle with sin is verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. That is to say, the basis for my standing before the Father is not my success or failure in my performance, but in the relationship I have with him because of the work of the risen Jesus, because that the risen Jesus has sent his Spirit now to dwell in me. And what does having the Spirit indwelling us mean? It means hope. 
the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The father poured out his spirit upon his son at his baptism and by the power of that spirit Jesus was enabled to do everything that the Father gave him to say and to do, even as Jesus went to the cross and offered himself as a sacrifice for sin, he did it in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so when the Father raised Jesus from the dead, he he not only made him alive again, but he appointed him as King and Lord over all, and he continued to fill him with his Spirit for that role. See what Peter says on the day of Pentecost. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, so that's the Son, by virtue of his resurrection from the dead, has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, but now he has poured out this. What's this? The Holy Spirit himself. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seen and hearing. Jesus' gift to us of the Holy Spirit is the deposit, the guarantee of our own future. It's the guarantee that that work of sanctification will be completed. One day we also will be raised up. One day we also will reign with Christ and in Christ. And in order to place us in such a position He will prepare and purify and transform us into the likeness of Jesus. Every sin and stain and wrinkle and blemish will one day be done away with. So when we struggle again and again with sin, two things thus far to say to ourselves, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And I am not in the flesh, but in the spirit. To say this is to confess the great hope that we have. No matter how fierce, no matter how discouraging the battle with sin might be, no matter how much or how often we feel like giving in, this is the Father's plan and destiny for me, to be raised up and seated with Christ. By faith, we can live in the reality of this hope. We can find comfort even in the midst of all of our sin and our weaknesses. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful, liberating, glorious truth of no condemnation. We thank you that Jesus Christ bore not just some, but all of our sin when he went to that cross. The same Jesus who himself knows our flesh, he knows our weaknesses, he knows our struggles. He himself was tempted and he himself cried out in anguish as he suffered the the pain of temptation, yet he overcame on our behalf. And he went to that cross as the perfect sacrifice and took all of our sin and shame 
all of our struggles, all of those things that want to bring us down and discourage and defeat us. Father, we ask that you will fill us with your spirit, that we might know that we walk no longer by the flesh, by our own desires and our own passions, but we are now filled and empowered and we overflow with your spirit. Send us out, Father, as your people, filled with your spirit, just as you did on that day of Pentecost, uh, to proclaim this wonderful, liberating good news of no condemnation in Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our final hymn uh, in response to God's word as we tell out the greatness of the Lord. Notice that this hymn is sung to ourselves. We're singing to our souls, telling our soul to tell out the greatness. Um, we do a lot of talking to ourselves. We should do a lot of talking to ourselves as Christians, reminding ourselves of the great truth of God's word and his spirit at work in us. Let's sing.